0: Cult Traffic, David, episode 40.
1: This is the true story.
0: The true story.
1: Of seven strangers
0: <laughs> picked to live in a house
1: and have their lives oh, Lucy, I'm home To find out what happens when people
2: stop being polite ah!
1: and start getting real. The real world. San Francisco.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast about everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts. I'm your host, Tom panneries and this time out I am giving you the penultimate episode in my series of podcast episodes and blog posts called 1994, The Most Important Year of the 90s. I covered television in my last episode, and for this one I've decided to stay in television because... No look at 1994 in popular culture would be complete without a decent look at one of the most important television shows of the 90s, well, at least as much for the youth of America, which is The Real World. Specifically, I'll be taking a look at the third season of The Real World, which back in 1994 was set in San Francisco and is easily one of the most memorable seasons of a long running reality show, or at least it was in its early years. If you're unfamiliar with the real world, I'll explain the show's concept very briefly, and hopefully that will shed some light on why I insisted on covering it for an episode of the show, especially since it doesn't necessarily have the best reputation in television. And that's probably because the real world is more or less responsible for the launch of the modern concept of reality television. Oh sure, there's no contests or prizes to wins. that would come about through the real world sister show Road Rules, but the idea of several people on an unscripted show is pretty revolutionary for the time the show premiered, which was which was in 1992, and has been copied in one way or another throughout the last 22 years. So the idea here is exactly what you heard in the show opener. MTV would find seven complete strangers and have them move into a house in a random city and then live together all the while having their lives taped. When the show launched its first season in 1992, it was set in New York. For the most part, the producers dropped the seven strangers into the house and had them go about their lives until the season ended. San Francisco is pretty much done the same way, although two years later, starting with Miami, the cast would be given a job with a local company or, or something to do, and I think that came about after the London season was considered one of the more boring seasons, although it was still pretty highly rated. The real world, believe it or not, is still on, and apparently is shooting another season in Chicago, as I say this. In its first few seasons, the real world was at first a novelty, and then a fascination, especially among the young people who were MTV's key audience at the time. The network found an enormous hit with the concept, and true to their fashion, would rerun the show endlessly, and while it didn't kill the music video right away, it definitely marked the beginning of a long, slow, painful end to music videos on the channel that made the music video famous. In the book, I Want My MTV, nobody really has anything that horrible to say about the real world, but many of the people who were interviewed point to this moment, 1992, as a watershed, and seem to agree that this turn toward reality television, combined with music videos becoming more expensive and the production of music videos becoming more bureaucratic, doomed MTV as they knew it. They also seem to lament its passing, although they also seem to understand what's being said, well, In this funny little video that went around back in 2012 on a YouTube channel named Brian and Maria, a sketch called Ask a Network Head.
1: Hi MTV, I'm a female in my mid-20s. Some of my favorite memories were hanging out with my friends, eating pizza, reading magazines, and watching music videos on your channel. Anyway, these days... I noticed that you only seem to air reality shows with really horrible, vapid people, and I just wondered why don't you play music videos anymore? Thanks, Natalie.
3: Dear Natalie, are you fucking kidding me? Should we all preserve your precious sleepover moments spent watching promotional material from record labels in amber, like the mosquitoes in Jurassic Park? The answer is fuck you. I'm gonna break it down for you and every other person born before 1995, otherwise known as not our f-ing demo anymore. So we can all finally put this behind us. Yes, back in the day we earned our brand credibility by breaking new artists, but music videos were only worth making if they had actual promotional power behind them. And the game has changed your generation, not the one before you, not the one after you, your generation decided to steal music. And music videos are more worthless than ever before. Puff Daddy used to be able to drive a speedboat through an explosion. At least that looked cool. Now you're lucky if you can make it through some dire piece of shit video without a character checking their hot new iPhone for three seconds at a concert. Surprise, that gaudy, blatant product shot is the only reason that video got funding in the first place. Why bother otherwise, when you can build an avid Twitter following for free? Before I continue, I just want to reiterate, it's your generation that stole music, and it's your generation that's b****ing about us not playing music videos anymore. Okay, okay alright, moving on. But MTV, where can I go to hear hot new music from my favorite artists? Oh, I don't know, how about the most empowering informational tools since the printing press, a.k.a. the internet? You subscribe to their Twitter feeds, you follow them on Facebook, you trust a computer algorithm like Pandora to tell you what new artists you should listen to, and you can watch your music videos again and again and again and on YouTube, build a f-ing playlist if you're so inclined. Are you seriously not sick of your favorite artists yet? Do you have such a lady boner for Mumford & Sons that you need to see them tumbling out of one more screen in your house? If we played music videos today, here's what we'd be forced to play. Katy Perry, Owl City, Lady Gaga, Justin Bieber, Carly Rae Jepsen, we might as well change our name to iTunes Music Store TV, and you'd complain that we don't play enough Pavement, R.E.M., and Nirvana. Which brings me to my final point. Admit it, you're getting older and you're afraid. Soon, you'll be totally irrelevant to pop culture, phased out. Soon you'll get married and have kids, develop totally new interests relevant to their survival and happiness. When you want to cut loose for a night out, you'll hire a babysitter, check silly old antiquated Google for showtimes and realize no movie looks good to you anymore. Worst of all, your favorite artists will charge an arm and a leg for their comeback tour tickets, and they're going to look really old on stage. That is if they don't already. So you toss out that old chestnut as a hip form of rebellion against the man. Why doesn't MTV play music videos anymore? And here's the kicker. That complaint is literally old enough to drive a car by now. Oh, and to answer your question about why we only air horrible reality shows about vapid people, because you watch that to feel superior. Go ask the Mirror why you watch it. I don't give a Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a check to write myself. Is this the check office? I'd like to write a check to myself for like a whole shit ton of money. Excellent.
0: Okay, in the book that I was talking about, they're not as nasty as the guy in the video. Of course, that's satire, and it's and it's meant to be funny. It is pretty funny, and I'll, I'll post this video to the show notes. We're talking 1984. We're talking the real world San Francisco. During an age when MTV still did air videos and was in the process of making a star out of Alicia Silverstone, uh, Cryin' was the video of the year. It beat out Sabotage by the Beastie Boys, Heart-Shaped Box by Nirvana, and Everybody Hurts by REM. And talk about some serious 90s videos right there. Those are three that are, well, four if you count Crying, those are four that are the epitome of early 90s MTV hits. The cast of the real world lived in San Francisco from February 12, 1994 until June 19, 1994, on the third and fourth floors of the house at 949 Lombard Street. And that's about a block east of the very famous, quote, most crooked street in America. It's still there, although according to the uh, San Francisco season's Wikipedia page, uh, the house has been renovated and an extension has been put on, partially due because to some fire damage. Uh, that was from back in 2000 casting for the show was completed in January of 94, and the casting process was fairly similar to most shows of this type. MTV aired a commercial for a casting call for people to send a letter and a photo, and then from there they conducted interviews. The interview process is a few moments in both Judd Winnick's graphic novel, Pedro and Me, as well as Dave Eggers' memoir, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. In Pedro and Me, Winnick takes about two pages on the audition process stage one is a letter and a photo stage two is having a friend interview on a, you on a video stage three is a phone interview and stage four is a live videotaped interview with the real world's producers it's at that point in the novel the graphic novel that Winnick tells us that they asked him the million dollar question when it came to casting this season how would you feel about living with someone who is hiv positive positive? His reaction sets up much of his part of the story as as liberal as he is judd is still hesitant confused and even a little frightened because of what he's seen or knows about hiv and aids it was probably a reaction that much of the cast gave when they were being cast as well although i'm sure some more reacted more strongly than others dave eggers was not cast in the real world but he was living in san francisco at the time and didn't make it to the fourth round of auditions he spends much of the chapter six of A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, using the casting interview as a way to get into his own head at the time, as he and his sister had been raising their younger brother at the time after their deaths and their parents, it's a surreal interview. Knowing that Eggers took creative liberties with a lot of what was in the memoir, quite a bit is probably not very true. When he rambles on about his childhood, the people that he knew, and even takes an educated guest about the makeup of the cast. His pitch is that he would be interesting because at the time, he was starting up the magazine known as Might, which ran until about 1997. It was a notable 20-something magazine for the 90s, at least in some circles. Honestly, the one thing it's most noted for is probably the issue with Adam Rich from uh, It Is Enough on a cover that was a fake memorial to the child actor, an early example of the celebrity death hoax. Eggers, of course, got passed over, and in an interesting twist, he was passed over for Judd Winnick, who would then, at some point during the season, take his cartoon to the Might offices and pitch it to them. The cartoon never actually appeared in Might, and as far as I can tell, the footage of him... Visiting with the editors of the magazine isn't in the show. But for all the writing with a capital W that is going on in a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, Eggers does offer this insight in the very beginning of the chapter. When we hear the news that it, at first that it, mean, it means almost nothing, it has just been announced that the real-world MTV seminal program involving the housing of seven young people in one house and the televising of their lives will film its next season in San Francisco. MTV is seeking applicants. They are looking for a new cast. At the office, we have a few hearty laughs about it. Has anyone seen the show? No, no. Some of it. We're all lying. Everyone's seen the show. We all despise it, are enthralled by it, morbidly curious. Is it interesting because it's so bad, because the stars of it are so profoundly uninteresting? Or is it because in it we recognize so much that is maddeningly familiar? Maybe this is indeed us. Watching the show is like listening to one's voice on tape. It's real, of course, but however mellifluous and articulate you hear your own words, once they're sent through this machine and are given back to you, they're high-pitched, nasal-horrifying. Are our lives like that? Do we talk like that? Do we look like that? Yes, it could be. It is. No. The banality of our upper-middle-class lives, so gaudily stuck between the mindless drunk driving of high school, that was meta at a metaphor only, and the death that is home-moaning and family having, especially when packaged within a comfort zone of colorful couches and lava lamps and pool tables, wouldn't this make interesting television only for those whose lives are even more boring than those of the real world's cast? But it's impossible to ignore. So... Who, besides Judd Winnick, moves into the real-world house in February of nineteen ninety four? Who were the seven strangers? We'll find out after this. Star Trek. Comic books. Mythology. Video games. Toys. Star Wars. Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on The Hammer Podcast, presented by two true freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed
3: mental processes can come up with. And be careful, or you might just learn something
0: before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at two true freaks. When The Real World premiered on June 30th, 1994, it introduced us to an incredibly diverse group of people and the show's most diverse cast to date. 20 episodes aired from June until November 10th, 1994, and all 20 are actually available for streaming on MTV. Now before I get into the specifics of the cast and the episodes, a word about that. One of the reasons that many of the early seasons of The Real World haven't seen a wider release on, say, DVD or via streaming really up until now, has less to do with a lack of an audience and more to do with music rights. This is true for a number of shows that use popular music from time to time, especially before the mid to late 90s and the 2000s, when the rights for the music were negotiated in their initial airings. subsidiary rights weren't. So in order for a show like The Real World, which used then popular music in its episodes to get a, say, a release on DVD, a lot more money would have had to have been paid to a number of artists. REM, Green Day, you know, what have you. Or you could do what MTV eventually did and replace the popular music, which is kind of generic instrumental music that either mirrors the pop music being played. For instance, there's a bass line in episode one that clearly is supposed to sound like Longview, or is music that's just enough to match the of the moment uh, this is at times easy to ignore but other times does not do the episode much of a service and it sometimes does cause the show to have this sort of grassy high feel to it not that there's anything wrong with Degrassi high trust me it's just that it's not very fitting for a show that purported to be about to be very hip and plugged in uh, I will say though that it doesn't really completely distract you from the episodes you're watching and the show is incredibly strong throughout all of its 20 episodes my summary for this might be a little long, and logically I would just go through all 20 episodes in order. But I found that it might be more interesting just to focus on the people. So what I'm going to do is basically give seven separate looks at the show from the perspective of each of the seven castmates, more or less. Let me introduce you to the castmates, though. They are Corey Murphy, blonde female college student from Fresno who is currently studying San Diego State and is kind of the naive nice one. Rachel Campos, a Latina girl, a recent college graduate from Arizona, who's devoutly Catholic and very Republican and has a degree in international relations. Judd Winnick, the cartoonist from Long Island, who is, as he puts it, a bedwetting liberal. Mohammed Bilal, the lead singer of a group named Midnight Voices, who are popular in San Francisco. He's also a devout Muslim, although that honestly does not become an issue in the House. I think now it would or at least um, in the early 2000 seasons, it would. Anyway, Pam Ling, a third-year medical student at the University of California, San Francisco, who, vi- who graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Harvard. It has has profet- her perfectionist streak and provides healthcare to the homeless as part of her medical work. And then there are the two most famous cast members, Pedro Zamora and David Puck Rainey. Puck is a bike messenger from San Francisco, and Paige is from Miami and is the HIV-positive housemate that Judd and all the rest of the castmates were asked about in their casting interview. To the producer's credit, by the way, they didn't let the cast know who was HIV-positive before they met Pedro. They allowed Pedro to take care of introducing that himself. Now, as far as the actual events of the season go, I'll start with Corey and Muhammad because they tend to get the least amount of screen time, especially Muhammad, who actually seems to basically disappear or fade into the background for quite a number of episodes in the latter half of the season. I'm pretty sure it's because other stories overshadowed what was going on in his life, but also because the key thing here is that there still was a season where the cast members were simply allowed to live their lives um it wouldn't be a couple years until as i mentioned until miami that the cast was given a group job or something to do so they were basically all around each other a lot more so yeah mo and puck are probably the most two local pam's a student in san francisco but these two have family roots here and i'll save puck for later muhammad is the easiest cast member to summarize. Um, and we see him performing poetry at his dad's club and performing with his band. At one point, he invites the gang to the Bay Area Music Awards, or Bammies, and we see various minor celebrity sightings. But for the most part, Muhammad seems to be the one to bring in different, a different type of culture to the house, which contrasts with Corey, who is clearly, like I said, the naive, the naive blonde one. At first, I guess it seems the producers are going for that dynamic because there's a point in an episode where Corey openly m- laments how, well, normal she is and how diverse her background is not. In fact, her biggest problem in the first half of the season is she really wants to work in a coffee house, but it's a lot harder to do than just filling out an application at Starbucks, and she reluctantly, well, ends up working retail. She works at Nordstrom, I believe. And instead of having a preset challenger task, the way the season is set up seems to be around the various problems or issues members of the cast may have, either financially, politically, ideologically, or personally. This mostly comes out in Rachel, who comes from that very strict Catholic family and is also very adamantly Republican. So she's set up almost from the beginning of the season as the person that is most different from everybody else in the house, at least in that regard. She attends young Republican meetings and at one point meets one of her heroes, Jack Kemp, who would later be the vice presidential nominee with Bob Dole in 1996. Judd, Muhammad, and Pedro are the three that she has the most arguments with about politics, especially Judd, who refers to, like I said, himself as a bedwetting liberal. Later that season, um, Rachel takes the group to a huge, well, a young Republican's rally. It's kind of a convention, a workshop. It's basically a big gathering, and uh, well, Judd can barely contain his eye rolls. But for what it's worth, I will say that I'm glad that MTV had Rachel on as a cast member and put such a spotlight on the political beliefs and her family's religious beliefs, because the network did tend to skew quite liberal. And while I am not conservative in the least, I'm glad they were fair about this and seemed to try not to paint her as some sort of, you know, oh, she's the crazy conservative monster or anything. I'm sure the fact that she's an Hispanic woman helps, and furthermore, what this does is provide a nice time capsule. While this is the Republican Party in what is quite possibly one of the most liberal cities in America, it is also the Republican Party right before they took control of Congress in the fall of 1994. That's when Newt Gingrich would be uh, chosen the Speaker of the House, and where we would, well... What we know as the modern-day Republican Party, or at least the GOP during the Bush years, kind of coalesced. So MTV is giving us a small snapshot here through Rachel's political ideology and her involvement in a very, very key time in the United States' modern political history, or at least current political history. But what's more important, or at least to me, is how Rachel is shown in her relationships to other people in the House, especially with Pedro. Later seasons would have cast members who were incredibly standoffish when it came to their differences in politics or religion. But here you have a young woman who is at least trying to understand those around her, and in turn hoping they will understand her. I think it comes from the fact that she's a very well-educated woman as well. I'll get to Rachel's and Pedro's relationship in a bit, but instead use this opportunity to transition to talking about Judd who was that polar opposite of Rachel who at that point was a struggling cartoonist. One of the funniest things through the first half of the season is the way he flirts with Rachel and I can't say I don't blame him she's very attractive but a running thing through most of the season is that Judd is lonely and lovesick which is funny considering that he and pam are actually married now um that by the way is one of the surprises of the season since i knew going in that they were married and i hadn't watched the show in like 20 years and i really hadn't watched the entire season uh when i first saw it i think i assumed that judd and pam fell in love while they were in the house but the entire season pam is still in a long distance relationship with this guy named chris and she and judd are just very good friends in fact Pam doesn't get much of a spotlight except for when we see her at work running a mobile health clinic for the homeless and checking up on Pedro from time to time, Uh, even getting upset to the point of tears in an episode later in the season over her friend's declining health. Back to Judd. He gives us a really great look at what it is like to struggle in a creative industry. One of the first things we learn when we meet Judd is that he was a successful cartoonist when he was in college, and he had a deal for a distribution of his strip. But after graduating, the deal fell through. So he's been more or less jobless since then. I mean, he picks up the occasional freelance job, but he's looking for a steady gig. And in the season's fifth episode, um, we see him basically hustling to make a name for himself. He goes on interview after interview and meeting after meeting uh, until he gets two bites. The San Francisco Examiner runs Nuts and Bolts starting in March of 1994 and has what seems like a Good, and he has what seems like a good meeting in Hollywood to talk, I think, animation. Um, that portion I found funny because it reminded me of uh, like when Animaniacs or The Simpsons would parody studio people. Um, the guy he talks to was so the Hollywood douche with the sty- stylish clothes and the 90s ponytail. In fact, if you remember the scene in Chasing Amy where Brian O'Halloran and Matt Damon play the animation studio guys... It's totally, totally that. But really, it shows how hard someone has to work just to get enough attention for someone to consider them. And it's an important thing to see in today's world of instant internet fame. I'm not sure how long Winnick Strip ran in The Examiner. I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find, find out. But he would go on to a successful career, especially as a comics writer, with runs, of course, on Green Lantern, Batman, The Outsiders, Um, He had a Titans run as well that I didn't like as much, but that's another podcast. And he also had his creator own works, uh, Barry Ween, Boy Genius, and uh, Pedro and Me, the latter of which I'll talk about later in this episode. Now, there are two cast members that I haven't talked about yet, and that is Pedro and Puck, who are definitely the most noteworthy cast members, but two who are for two incredibly different reasons. Pedro, uh, Pedro, like I said, uh, was the elephant in the room. MTV had chosen him knowing that he was both openly gay and that he had AIDS, two things that defined his life and his career at that point. Pedro was an AIDS educator and an activist, and as much of his storyline centers around showing what he did, which was teaching students about the disease and campaigning for awareness. There are moments where he seems like a walking PSA, of course, and it seems that MTV is forcing all this down our, of the audience's throat. But the more you see Pager, the more you realize that it wasn't so much MTV as it was him. He felt it was important for him to use his time almost as a platform. Furthermore, we see him meet and fall in love with Sean Sasser, who become his partner by the season's end. But in the first episode, it was, well, someone in the house has AIDS. and None of you know who it is and we're going to let it all come out organically. To the cast's credit, it goes without off without a ton of melodrama. Yeah, there's hesitation. Rachel's doesn't really want to talk to him. Judd's a little bit conflicted, but there's no screaming match. Rachel and Pedro, whom the uninitiated and ignorant would assume be the most likely to get along, because you know they're both. Hispanic. Um, They actually have a huge clash of ideology because of her Catholicism and conservatism and his being openly gay. And honestly, what I like about this and what I like about Pedro and Rachel is that while there is tension and that is often expressed in avoidance and yes, even a little bit of argument, the two of them have enough maturity and respect for one another to come to an understanding about one another. By season's end, there is a real growth that you often don't get from the cast members in later seasons. And then there's Puck. Puck is basically a walking id, and Puck makes no apologies for the fact that Puck is basically a walking id. He's obnoxious, he's outspoken, and by the midpoint of the season he's openly hostile toward Pedro, whom he doesn't get along with almost from the very beginning. And it's hard to tell if his not liking Pedro is because of homophobia or racism or just because he's just, he's just an immature prick. Pedro doesn't like him either. I mean, on a basic level, that's because they are a Felix and Oscar type of duo. Pedro's neat and tiny, Puck's a slob. This famously shows itself in the peanut butter incident, which is a moment where Puck literally takes his dirty fingers and puts them in a jar of Pedro's peanut butter and then eats the peanut butter off his fingers. I mean, it might have been in the house as peanut butter, but basically he did it in the peanut butter. He scoops them up and he eats it, and it's just, A, it's disgusting, and B, it royally pisses off Pedro. It's one of the most famous moments from the season, and when I watched it, I took two things away from it. First, first, it's gross, and I don't care what your personal feelings are about anyone or in the house or whatever. It's gross. (laughs) Second, I actually thought this occurred later in the season, for whatever reason, maybe it's a hazy memory, which is most likely, I thought that this was the last straw when it came to Puck's eviction, and it turns out it's more like the first one. Going all through that has actually led us up to that moment, which takes place in episodes 10 and 11 of, of the 20 episodes. This is the ev- the eviction of Puck from the house. And, and the, the lead up to that is, is in episode eight, Pedro shows signs of being sick and Puck doesn't really seem to help matters as he's openly rude and even goes as far as to mock Pedro's you know, activism and his work. This escalates in the next episode to where Puck is openly hospitalized hostile toward pedro and pedro deals with it by isolating himself from the rest of his housemates it's then where we begin to see that puck isn't just getting on pedro's nerves he's really getting on everyone's nerves he and rachel openly argue mainly because puck's dating a woman named tori and she begins seeing a guy and rachel sees this guy named damian and it brings us the obvious attraction they have toward one another that something might have been happening or could have happened, and they're kind of jealous. There's a situation where Puck's hocking the phone in the house, which in 1994 was a much more egregious offense than it is now, and he's obnoxious toward Corey when she has car trouble. So, at one point, they all the rest of them go to Muhammad's birthday party at a restaurant, and they spend most of the night bitching about Puck, and kind of puts a big cloud over the night and they decide well we've got to do something about this interestingly enough the eviction episode does not begin with we're kicking you out the conversation that takes place starts with simply confronting puck about his attitude and his just the way he is around them but it gets heated and pedro is the one who basically gives the ultimatum of either he goes or i go and storms off it's then where Puck confronts the rest of the cast and then Pedro comes back apologizing for his behavior and both of them eventually leave, agree to leave the house and leave the rest of the roommates on their own to decide what's going to happen. Judd incidentally is the one who brings up the eviction and Corey tries to kind of defend Puck but ultimately they decide to evict him.
1: Can you hear me all right? Yes, we're all here. We're all here. Everybody's here. Yes. It's, it was too big uh, an issue to tell someone over the phone. It was ending a relationship of sorts. You just don't do that. You have enough respect to do it in person. But we also had to do it that night. It wasn't something that we could sleep on, and more importantly, I didn't want anyone to, well, to hedge. Fuck, as you asked me before and you wanted to know... Do we want you to move out of the house? And the question, the answer is yes. We made a decision as a house that we would like you to move out. So and that's great. You wanted me to come all the way back over there so you could tell me I was out of the house. We wanted to tell you to your face. face. We didn't want to tell you on a machine. Well, I think you're all really petty for this whole thing. That's what I think. This is something we've all decided, dude. Oh, you think of how I feel? Fuck,
2: I thought about how you felt.
1: You guys don't feel bad.
2: Of course we Come do. home, huh? Come here and talk to us.
1: So I can get on some more, Corey?
3: Puck, so we can talk to you face to face. This is ridiculous. This is too hard to talk like this.
1: I haven't done anything to get kicked out of the house.
2: Puck, you you said that you wouldn't compromise.
1: You guys just dictate what happens to me.
2: But the thing is, is that you were trying to dictate what was going to happen to all of us. And when we asked you not to do that anymore, you refused. And now you're feeling like we feel. And you don't like it. Puck, 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 No. I'm not pecking, Puck. I'm being honest with you.
1: Hey, I honestly care about each and every one of you, okay?
2: Puck, come home.
1: I don't know. It seems like I really, um, I should. But I don't feel comfortable doing it. Okay. I kind of left on my own accord, you know? And I love you guys to death. You're the
2: puck, c- I love you too. I do.
1: You are the, the cutest, man. And I guess I'll be seeing you when I'm packing up my stuff. Bye, dude.
0: I'm going to take another quick break now. And when I get back, I'm going to have the second half of the real world San Francisco season.
2: Gathered together from the far reaches of the Internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring
3: Superman and
0: Batman, Golden Age Superman the superman fan podcast the dc comics present show from crisis to crisis a superman podcast it's superman the schuster herald podcast the carers podcast superman forever radio superman lives up up and away cadmus to crisis a
3: superboy podcast the Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen podcast,
0: the world's best podcast, and
1: Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com.
3: Join hosts Michael Bradley,
1: John Wilson,
3: Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Brad, Bradley, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner,
0: Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe,
3: Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer,
0: Matthew Epps, I'm
2: Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Yunus, and co-host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com.
0: changes and storylines shift to individual stories again whereas they kind of came together and this everybody centered around uh, this this guy and, and the eviction and everything. In the first episode after Puck they have to find a new roommate and they do find a new roommate in Joe, Josephine Joe, Joanna or Josephine Rhodes. Joe is originally from London but she was living in Lake Tahoe and has a similar free spirit as Puck but she's more polite, she's more tidy and she's more of a mature human being certainly than puck was joe's big story when we first meet her is that she is divorced and her ex-husband was horribly abusive to the point where she has to have a restraining order on him and in one episode she goes to court to make sure that restraining order sticks she's in a sense a breath of fresh air in the house and doesn't create problems on the level of the problems that puck was causing one of the more interesting pieces of tension, though, is that her relationship with Rachel becomes so close that actually makes Corey a little jealous. And Corey, not that she is a, she's distant from everyone, but she does try to at least keep the peace with Puck after the eviction as well. Unfortunately, um, he does not take things very well, and for every moment that he tells the cameras he's in a good place, there's one where he's calling the house and making harassment comments toward the roommates. So Corey starts to be the go-between, but eventually even she tires of Puck's crap. Muhammad, on the other hand, isn't around much and finds himself struggling to balance everything that is going on in his life. He, at one point, breaks up with his girlfriend, Stephanie, and almost immediately regrets it and tries to throw himself into his own work, which is pretty successful. But the only problem is that he's not around very much, and we actually don't really see him very much in the second half of the season. Pam and Judd continue to go along with their lives, jobs, and relationships. Judd's romantic life, or lack thereof, is a bit of a comedic subplot, especially when the producers give them a trip to Hawaii and he gets a little jealous when the girls flirt with their diving instructors. The Hawaii trip is a fun little detour, and aside from Joe regurgitating some pork she accidentally ate because she's a vegan, she didn't realize there was pork in what she was eating, uh, there's really no drama on the trip. I'd say if there's a difference between the second half of the season and the first half of the season is the second half of the season seems more upbeat and there is more of a focus on the relationships between the housemates than before Puck, whereas before that there was a lot of job focus. I mean, not to say that there wasn't any focus on how they got along, but it seemed... Uh, the second half seems more focused on the relationship between Corey and Rachel and Rachel and Joe and how by the end of the season, some of them have more of an understanding of one another than they originally did. Whereas the first half of the season seems very, okay, here's my ideology. Here's my job. Here's what I'm trying to do with myself and how we're kind of getting along, but we're not. And then puck kind of through the whole monkey wrench into everything. For instance, Here's a good example. In season in episode 18, which is the first post-Hawaii episode, um, that's when Rachel takes Judd to that GOP conference, and Judd does the epic eye rolls. But to everyone's credit, it's handled more maturely than you'd see nowadays. I mean, nobody changes their views or anything like that. But it's not like they spend the rest of the season not talking to one another. In fact, they've, they've grown close and respectful of one another to the point at this point in the season, where if there's any tension in the house, it's because they're just getting on each other's nerves, the way roommates get in on each other's nerves. Um, and the show ends up with ends with everybody packing and moving out. And Puck continues to call, and he continues to be a dick. And everyone reflects on what well, what their time meant there. It's it's actually pretty anticlimactic if if you think about it, mainly because there's no. Well, there's no storyline to drive the second half of the season. It's just like, okay, we're all over puck, and now here's Joe and Rachel, and Joe are friends, and Corey isn't. But everybody else, it's like, okay, there you go. And it's reality television in in kind of its purest form, in a sense. I mean, it's still this is reality, still in its infancy. But this is a time when it tried, at least. At least tried to reflect reality a little more than it does now. After the season concluded, and in the years that followed, the real world San Francisco, though, um, and the reason I'm covering it for this podcast, had two lasting legacies that are very, very important to both um, culture and, and television itself. The first is Puck. Puck made appearances on reunions where he was rude to other cast members and generally stirred up shit and was also on at least one challenge season and he had been in various legal troubles since his time in the show, but the reason he is important is not because he's Puck, but it's because of what he is, rather than who he is. Puck is essentially the first true reality show asshole. He came into the house being self-righteous, stirred up conflict, got thrown out by a group of people who didn't want to put up with his crap, and refused to go away after that was over. This is mainly due to the fact that, uh, at least from what we saw on the show, Puck was an incredibly immature person and someone who obviously was not self-aware in any way, shape, or form. He's not a villain in the way you would see villains on competition reality shows, such as Survivor, for instance. But Tuck is one of the first self-absorbed assholes on reality television, the type who has no qualms about putting himself in the spotlight, especially since that spotlight will validate his ego and feed his bullshit. And as much as MTV, Bravo, TLC, E, or any other network is guilty for exploiting that, the audience, of course, is just as guilty for, well, as the sketch I played at the beginning of the episode says, eating that shit up because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Honestly, as much as Puck would like to think that Puck is the only thing of note in that season, he's not. And if he were, he would be a trivia question or a footnote. He is a trivia questioner. Footnote, but the whole season would be just that. He is, but for me, and quite a number of people in my generation, the season's other legacy is what makes it important, and that's Pedro Zamora. I'll talk about him as well as Judd Winnick's graphic novel Pedro and Me after this. You
2: are about to witness history in the making.
0: Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Film Cast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic and wherever you find great podcasts. Yeah! i got a new age girl.
1: Tell, Tell us, us what she's like. Like.
0: 2000, Jud Winnick wrote, drew, and published Pedro and Me, Friendship, Loss, and What I Learned. It is a memoir of his time in the real world, but also a biography of Pedro himself and serves as a supplement to the 20 episodes of the season. I'll get to the graphic novel in a bit, but I wanted to start with what we saw of Pedro Zamora on the actual series. There are three things that are the focus when the real world puts the spot on pager it obviously starts with him being the elephant in the room in that first episode as i've mentioned a couple of times somebody has aids nobody knows and he's the one and he's up front about it everyone seems to be a little more comfortable about it after meeting him except for puck and rachel it's puck's case as well considering everything i've already mentioned you know it's puck but with rachel it's different rachel is not mean or ignorant or hateful she's just her, her political views are what they are, and she has a very strict religious background as well. And it's a huge clash of ideology. And the two have a relationship that evolves over time. Part of this has to do with Rachel's desire to think, feel, and do things for herself instead of acting explicitly how her parents expect. But part of it also has to do with an obvious attempt at being made at humanizing both of them. This leads to the second thing. Pedro is not a caricature or stereotype of any kind. One of the more important things that MTV did over this season is show someone who was living with and not dying of AIDS. It's important to make the distinction too because up until that point the prevailing image of someone with AIDS was one of the was that of the AIDS victim. Uh, whom Winnick actually describes at one point in Pedro and me as like something out of Auschwitz. Humanizing the disease and showing someone going through it and going through a normal life without relying on the very special episode trope was both important and groundbreaking as was depicting a homosexual in a relationship in a way that was just as straightforward as any other relationship on the show. There was very little about the relationship between Pedro and Sean Sasser that screamed gay, gay, gay all the time. And at the end of the season they got married. Episode 19 is all about their relationship and it ends with Pedro and Sean having a commitment ceremony in the house surrounded by the family and by their family and friends. This was tw- 20 years ago, and it was incredibly revolutionary for its time, as you wouldn't get this on primetime network for at least a couple of years, and even then it wasn't without controversy, and network affiliates threatening to pull their support for whatever episode was being aired, whether it be on Friends or Roseanne or Ellen. Third and finally, there was the educational aspect of all this. Pedro was not just gay and living with AIDS. He was an AIDS activist. He was an AIDS educator. And just like MTV showed the other housemates at work, they showed Pedro at work. And this included visits that he took, uh, that he went to various places, including one to see Rachel and her parents in her home in Arizona, where he goes and speaks to a group of students about HIV and AIDS. If you watch it, there's definitely a nervousness about some of it. But it's not uncomfortable, and you can see that a lot of this has to do with Pedro's maturity and his natural charisma. There are moments where Pedro's activism and passion does threaten to overshadow everything, and he seems a little forceful, but he never becomes sanctimonious, and he never becomes a self-righteous prick. In fact, that's more or less what leads off Pedro and me. Winnick opens with a two-page spread of various random people and then shots of him talking to them and it's basically all about how he's recognized and been on the show and how the conversation often turns to pedro i hate to bother you excuse me can i ask you something this may seem like a stupid question do i know you do you go to ucla where do i know you from were you on mtv are you on that show you were on mtv right What's that show? Real people. No, you're on the real world, right? Holy shit, you're from the real world. I watched every single episode. You're Judd, the cartoonist guy. Oh my God, I know you. Are you still with Pam? Can I have your autograph? I just wanted to say hi. You look taller on TV. You guys are really cool. I was thinking of doing that. How'd you get on that show? Is it all true? I loved Pedro. I thought Pedro was amazing. I have a good friend with HIV. His story was so moving. My uncle has AIDS. I lost my brother. The show brought it all back. It meant so much to see people talking about it. Were you nervous living with him? I've never known anyone with AIDS. I wish I'd met him. Was it hard, I mean, when he got sick? You two seem like real good friends. It was so sad when he died. Almost every day of my life for the past six years, I meet strangers who know who I am. You get used to it. I was a cast member of The Real World 3, San Francisco, the third season of MTV's documentary soap opera that takes seven strangers and puts them up in a house for six months and films them for 24 hours a day. No scripts, no direction. As long as we were awake, we were filmed. The footage was edited down to 20 episodes, each 22 minutes, 30 seconds, and set to pop music. Some folks question its authenticity. Is the real world really real? It's a valid question. Can people truly be themselves when they are aware that all their actions are being filmed? But I believe anyone who has watched The Real World San Francisco would agree that our experience was very genuine, very honest, and yes, very real. My fellow cast member and roommate was a young man named Pedro Zamora. Prior to The Real World, Pedro was nationally recognized, a nationally recognized AIDS educator and activist. And By appearing on the show, he gave the world a chance to listen to him and see him live. He became an international face of AIDS. That face was one of strength, compassion, and sensitivity. But for me, he was a friend. He bookends the novel with a conversation that he has with a cab driver who's very spiritual and talks about bringing light out of darkness. He then goes into his own background and beliefs and leads up to... How he was chosen and to be on the show, and how he actually was more fearful than he wanted to admit about living with someone who had AIDS. We then get Pedro's biography. Pedro grew up poor in Cuba and eventually got on a boat and fled to a co- the country to Miami. His mother died when he was eleven, and a few years later, he begins dating men. And only when he when he begins dating men, he eventually does come out to his father, and his father is very very supportive. Unfortunately, Pedro knows nothing about safe sex and very, very little about AIDS except for the stigma that the the disease carries because this takes place when awareness about AIDS was still in its infancy. And when the school has a blood drive, his high school has a blood drive, he gets news from the Red Cross that his blood is reactive. In other words, he could have AIDS. In November of 1989, he finally gets tested and he tests positive. He goes through essentially a grieving process. We see some of the first times the virus has an effect on him, which is when he gets a horrid case of shingles. Then he begins to work for Body and an AIDS resource group in Miami, and his speaking career begins as it takes off, so much so that he's traveling across the country and speaking in 1992 and 93. Then his best friend and roommate, Alex Escarano, encourages him to try out for the real world, and he gets accepted. The next section focuses on the real world season itself, how weird it was having the first, at first having cameras everywhere, how at first glance he thought Puck, Puck might be the guy with AIDS because of how bruised and scraped up he was, and then he realized, no, those weren't chaos spots, Puck just kind of falls down a lot, <laughs> and then he gets into um, what it was like to actually meet Pedro and learn more about AIDS, moreover, how comfortable Pedro made him feel. And it's mostly about Judd and Pedro, followed by Judd and Pam, who you don't see being more than friends with him on the show, but whom he admits he had a thing for. More than on the show, um, which did have moments that focused on Pedro's health, Winnick spends time on how Pedro was, well, not, not cavalier about his condition per se, but didn't want it to be the sole focus of his time in the house and on the show. After spending time in Pedro's relationship with Sean, Winnick sums up the whole experience incredibly well in a segment called Looking Forward, Looking Back. We lived in the house for a total of six months. It was the most exhausting six months of my life. There's an unspoken pressure to be interesting. We had an ongoing internal mantra of, go, God, don't let me be boring. At the end of every week, we would sit down and give an interview. These are the looking at the cameras that narrate types that narrate The shows with the opinions and reflective accounts of what happened. Week in and week out, we had to discuss, dissect, and regurgitate everything that transpired the week before. It's like therapy without the help. It was exhausting. At the same time, it was amazing. We lived in this pressure cooker existence where reality became much more real by the fact that it was being documented. That intensity made the highs that much higher. Like the friends I made. The second greatest day I had in the house was a trip. And Pedro, Corey, and I took to Monterey. At halfway through the show, Corey became part of us. Our trio became a quartet. On the surface, I don't think you could find more, four more different people. Corey was a pretty naive white Christian gal from Fresno. Pedro was a Cuban-born immigrant who lived his life fighting to educate young people about AIDS. Pam, an Asian-American Phi Beta Kappa from Harvard in her third year of medical school, and me, your Jewish New York cartoonist, not exactly cut from the same cloth. Why did our friendship work? Because we like candy ring pops, because we like sitting on rocks watching pelicans, because we like taking goofy pictures, but mostly because we weren't really the stereotypes our backgrounds or TV made us out to be. We were more. We saw that in each other. Those were the highs. The low points of living in the house were mostly about fear. Whereas most of us were concerned with being boring, Pedro was concerned with his goal, He wasn't just living in the house and being filmed. He had an agenda, a purpose, a sense of responsibility. This is what a gay man of color living with AIDS is like, really like. He was living with AIDS. He wasn't sick. He could hold a job. He could fall in love, be in a relationship, do everything and anything anyone else could do. He wasn't going to be the sickly AIDS boy from MTV. He was going to show them that you could succeed and live with AIDS and HIV. But he wasn't. It was a lie. Pedro was sick. As fate would have it, Pedro was relatively healthy before he came to San Francisco. Still, Pam knew something was wrong from day one. We talked about it, and she worried, and we worried. He was our friend, not a patient. It was important to him that he not be viewed as sick, but just like everyone else, Pedro hid a lot of it. Pam and I helped him hide it. We felt the responsibility to honor his mission, so in our weekly interviews, when the question came up, How is Pedro feeling? we'd lie and it shows them both saying he's fine, doing great. Alex Escarano, Pedro's roommate and best friend from Miami, told him, told us later that Pedro knew that the stretch was getting to him. Pedro also felt pressured just after a few weeks. It got real bad when we asked our housemate, Puck, to move out. To say the least, Puck was obnoxious, acted homophobic, and in general had a problem, quote, playing with others, so we asked him to leave. Alex spoke to him that night. And they have a conversation about it. And how he's struggling with with staying around. And Alex is like, why don't you come home? And and Pedro says, no, I have friends who love me and I'll be okay. And we did love him, but he wasn't okay. He had night sweats, weight loss. He was sleeping more and more. He then caught PCP, pneumocystis carini pneumonia. He covered quickly, but neither Pam nor I got over it. We never verbalized it, but we saw him differently. We saw him as sick. The last two months of the show after Pedro had pneumonia, I had trouble sleeping. I would wake up and listen to him breathe. I was afraid he would stop. Pedro was like my little brother. It was my job to look out for him. At first, I did whatever I could to help deliver his message. Then I just didn't want him to die. After taping and as the season airs, Pedro's health declines pretty rapidly. He's hospitalized and Judd takes over a number of his lecture gigs. He's in and out of the hospital, and eventually is permanently hospitalized, dying hours after the final episode of the show airs. Winnick does a great job of showing this over a few pages, using a lot of shots of people's faces and their emotion, a full page of a wide shot of a very, very small-looking Pedro in his bed, um, very to-the-point narration, and one of the best ways to describe this is it's not very dramatic, it's very quiet. The best way is is how he describes it, his death. It's not very dramatic. It's, It's very quiet. That's how death comes, quietly, simply. Most people find out about death by a phone call. We were there. One moment he was with us. The next minute he was gone. Judd then continues to lecture, and he begins to realize that the impact Pedro had on him is greater than the one he thought he had because he'd thrown himself into his work. And uh, when, when he comforts a 12-year-old girl after a junior high school assembly, it seems to finally hit him. Uh, Pedro and me concludes with someone seeing Judd at the airport and telling him how much of an impact Pedro had on his life and how it inspired him to become an AIDS activist himself. And it's pretty easy to make a moment like this seem, well, maudlin, like a pat ending. And in fact, it's very easy to see how a story like this as a whole could be very, very maudlin. Furthermore, Winnick has the difficult task of not making this graphic novel come off as, I had a gay friend, look at how I had a gay friend. There are certainly portions that do feel that way, and there are moments that get a little bit preachy. But he also does a good job at focusing on the relationship he had with Pedro and deflecting his audience's desire to read this if they're looking for some sort of dirt or gossip about the real-world cast from 20 years ago. What I take away from this, and from the real world, is its honesty. And an honesty that I can personally relate to. I was 17 years old in 1994, and while I had a decent knowledge of AIDS, it wasn't something I was completely familiar with. Furthermore, I wasn't completely comfortable with homosexuals either, and really would not be for at least a few more years. I wasn't gay bashing and, and you know, outwardly yelling epithets at anybody knew who was gay. If I knew anybody, but I definitely had the sort of homophobia that I think a number of people my age would have had an uneasiness that comes from ignorance, inexperience, and most of all, immaturity. I grew up in a town much like the one Judd Winnick come from. And in fact, His hometown and my hometown are about a half an hour or 45 minutes away from each other. So I was incredibly sheltered. And never having to encounter or experience anyone who was fundamentally different from myself, well, that's what bred a lot of the immaturity about it. And that's why... I wanted to cover the show and the graphic novel. I thought about it when I started looking at 1994. And as I kept watching it and I kept seeing what was happening, I realized I was the target audience back in 1994. And it had then and even now had the intended impact. Plus, Just on a television level, this was an incredibly different version of the real world, especially considering uh, what we would get in later seasons. (laughs) And this was a unique opportunity for MTV's audience. And in so many ways, this season is a time capsule of that year, of that part of the decade, of the culture, of, of just so much of it. Um. You can watch the show on MTV.com. I will provide a link in the show notes if you're still look, interested in looking at it. There's one episode. I think it's like episode four. It's either episode four or episode seven, but I think it's episode four. For some reason, there's only like nine minutes of it available on on the website. But uh, Wikipedia has some decent summaries of, of the episodes as well. Um, Pager and Me is still in print. Uh, you can buy that on Amazon. And uh, I recommend going and checking both of them out. Um, I think you'll get a really, really interesting, good view of, of what youth culture and what life was like back, back in that year. And, and uh, you, I think you, you learn quite a bit as well. As for me, I've got two more episodes in 2014. One of them is going to be the wrap-up for 1994, the most important year of the 90s, which is going to be me wrapping things up but also having another grab bag for you and then I've got a Christmas themed episode along the way and that I believe is what's going to be scheduled for next so hopefully within a week or two that'll be out until then thanks for listening and take care you have reached the end of another episode of pop culture affidavit All music, clips, and other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, show notes, and essays on other topics random in the world of popular culture can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Pop Culture Affidavit also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the De Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks Podcasts? Go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.